0: Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, my brother. Hey, guys,
1: welcome
0: to another episode of Vertical Momentum where we talk to game changers and we talk to people that are actually disrupting the game and changing the game. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors, first of all, disgruntled veterans, uh, great company, always helping other veterans. Jacqueline and, and Ryan are always helping other people. Checked him out, Disgruntled Vets. Guys, the gentleman that I'm having on is one of the only person I've interviewed twice. Um, I considered him a a friend. He's doing some great things. He is the co-author of one of my favorite books of all time. Um, And I loved it so much, I got the audio version. So I've read it and got the audio version. Unleash Your Humble Alpha. My friend, Stephen Eugene Kuhn, How are you, my brother? Good morning.
1: Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Richard.
0: Um, I'm so blessed to have you on. And I got a couple of questions from the group. They want to know later. I'll talk about that. But you guys got so much going on. How's everything going? I know you got to be pumped up.
1: Yeah, we're completely pumped. I mean, the Humble Alpha book was never just a book. It was all about a movement that we had the intention. uh, We set the intention to create and it's, practically happening almost on its own, you know, because that intention is so powerful. and We've turned it into certainty as we write about in the book. And it's just one day after the other, it just, things are just piling up and happening and amazing things uh, like an investment fund, like the course going to the universities, um, you know, the humble alpha course being brought into Forbes business school MBA program as a f- part of the full curriculum and at some other universities as well, the U S army. Uh, and it's just literally happening. Uh, without much effort on our side, because of the of the intention that we set, and turning that into uh, into um, certainty through visualization, and that visualization makes it real in your in your head in your brain, and as we know, the brain can't tell the difference between reality and what we visualize. So, we always say, just visualize what it is that you desire, and it becomes reality, and it's actually happening right now.
0: And I love it. And Now you got your own swag.
1: Yeah. I, like,
0: yeah. I, I love that. Um... But you know, a lot of people they want to know about little Stephen. They want to know the how you became the man that you are today. Yeah. And when last time we talked, we never really got to talk about your childhood at all. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna hop back in the hop in the way back machine. Okay. And so tell us what little Stephen was like when he was
1: growing up. Insecure self loathing. Um, you know, we had I don't know four or five men in our life by the time I was eighteen. Um, you know, my parents divorced when they were when I was, I guess, three or four, and then it just every couple years again. And I uh, was with my mother the whole time. Uh, and and you, but I don't look at it as a sad thing. I look at it as formidable, and it uh, it formed me to who I am. But you know, all the way through high school, I just I just didn't like myself. I had no self self love, and I had no um, you know sort of power inside of me. I tried sports. I tried baseball. And I tried football. I tried wrestling. I tried basketball. And I was just horrible at all of them because I didn't believe that I could do it. And,
0: and how, what kind of a student were you?
1: Um, I was really good until high school. I was a really good student until high school. You know, when you're a loner, it's easy. <laughs> Everybody's in the, you know, in the lunch hall, uh, you know, talking with each other. When you sit alone, you just end up reading a book. And that's basically what I did the whole time with study until I got to high school. I just started getting into trouble all the time um, started doing a little bit of the extracurricular activities, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, just kept getting in trouble, skipped, I don't know, like 25% of my senior year, um, almost didn't graduate. Um, actually on when I went across the stage at graduation, I didn't get my certificate or my diploma. I got an empty piece of paper and I had to go back and, uh, they let me take a test over again to, so I could graduate. It was, uh, <laughs> scary moment because i was leaving for the army 10 days later so i was like oh jesus you know i gotta do this so yeah now
0: i love talking to people you know now i've interviewed hundreds of people now on shows and oh now we're up to like almost 250 episodes wow (laughs) i would love to know your recruiting story because everybody has a different recruiting story so what was yours walking into the recruiting
1: Well, I actually wanted to join the Navy. Um, And I, um, as of eight years old, I always wanted to join the Navy. And then when I got old enough, I was 16 or 17. And um, I went to the Navy recruiter and they put me in this pre-Navy program where every Thursday we'd go and learn all about the Navy, how to fold clothes, how to talk, all this kind of stuff. And then when it was time to sign up, I went to to the recruiter station and he left me sitting there. I think it was about three hours. And the entire time I was sitting there, this army guy in his dress blues kept walking around. So, what are you doing here, son? I'm like, I'm waiting for the Navy. He goes, yeah, you get used to that. And, you know, he just kept talking and talking and talking. And finally, I got so upset that I was waiting so long that I just went to the Army recruiter and signed up. And so that's how I joined the Army. And then I signed up as an airborne truck driver. And then I wanted to change that. So I went back and changed it. And then um, uh, the day I was supposed to leave, I was getting on the airplane and they pulled me off and the police were there. And I, they, they said I couldn't leave the state until I paid a fine for underage drinking. And so I couldn't leave again. And, uh, I went back home and my mom was really upset because at that time she was pretty much fed up with me. Um, I had been in a lot of trouble and, uh, I went back to the map station or to the, I had already sworn in and they said, well, you're going to be on tanks now. And I was like, "No, I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't want to go anymore. I changed my mind. And they're like, well, you can't, you already swore in, (laughs) you know? So they called my father who came in and He's like, "Oh, you're gonna look at you look at this video from you know. I'll never forget the the guy's name was Kevin Crawley, the guy in the in the M1 Abrams um, TV commercial." And
0: I watched the same commercial. Yeah,
1: and and it was like, in. yeah, and he pushes this button and all these lights light up, and you know, he's like, "Oh, look at that! You're gonna learn about computers." And all he was doing, I found out later, was was pushing the test lights button. So yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, that's how I ended up on tanks, man. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How come they never showed you? Breaking track in Germany. Yeah, I know, stuff. right?
1: In the mud or, or, or even flipping your tank on its side. I mean, yeah, they never showed any of that stuff.
0: <laughs> so, you know, what was it like, you know, since you, when you got out, when you first got to basic, did you go to Fort Knox? Yes,
1: yeah, so I went to Fort Knox. Um, and I got to tell you, I, um, I you know, I, was a, I couldn't run to save my life, you know. Um, and I remember we started running around the parking lot one time and then the next day, two times, the next day, three times. I was having a heck of a time. But I decided that I don't care what happens. I'm going to stay at the front. And so I started doing that. And once we started getting to like two clicks and three kilometers and five kilometers and 10 kilometers, it was getting harder and harder for me to stay at the front. But I refused to, to drop out. And uh, I would literally be running at the front vomiting on myself because I was just so out of, you know, out of shape and out of, you know, out of breath. And but it didn't stop me. I just said, I'm not, I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep going. And uh, yeah, that's what I ended up doing. It's just staying at the front. You know, there was a couple of times I dropped out from heat stroke um it was fort Fort Knox's like hundred percent humidity. <laughs> and uh yeah, it was it was rough. Um and it was also at the time where the drill sergeants could sort of kick you in the butt and swear at you and cuss at you and things like that. So um, you know, they broke me down and turned me into a machine.
0: Now what year did you go through? 86,
1: 1986
0: So me and you went through the same year I was in a Disney barracks. Oh me too.
1: I was in Disney Barracks, Bravo two one.
0: Wow, we probably met at the. We probably passed each other at the challenge. Yeah, or
1: at PX after when yeah. AIT started. Yeah, because we we had the OSET right one station unit training. Yeah. yeah, that was. Me. Yeah, that's fun. So
0: now you did really good in the military. Yeah, um, I did. But you got, you know, set several medals. You've, you, you know, you pretty much been there, done that, got deployed. Um, how many years did you do total?
1: About seven, just about seven. So,
0: so what was, you know, um, the moment that you got out? What was that like? Well, you know, it was like a lot of people. And, you know, when they get out, um, you know, they lose their sense of camaraderie. Yeah. And they also lose their mission. Yeah. You know, you know like, even though we're hardcore, we get used to getting paid on the 1st and the 15th. we You know, we get used to getting SGLI. Um, and then when we hit the streets, like Nick Valentine says, you know, the military don't give a shit about you yep. and you're out on your own. So what was your transition?
1: Well, from? you know, I got a European out, so I got an early out and then I got a European out. So the early out meant that, uh, I could get out two and a half years earlier and because they were downsizing at that time, you know, it was in 92, um, I got out in 93 and, um, I, you know, I did a European out, walked off base in my greens and I was a civilian drove to Berlin from Schweinfurt. Um, went out and partied with some friends I had there and my girlfriend at the time. And I was a civilian, like overnight (laughs) and, uh, threw myself into the civilian culture of Germany and, uh, started doing stuff. And the first thing I did was I was a security guard and I was a doorman and I worked at the airport as security. So I did three jobs and, um, and shift work. And I remember standing at the door of a club one night, a couple weeks after I got out and, uh, the, um, there was this kid that came up, I don't know, could have been like more than 16 or 17. And I was 27 at the time. And he said, uh, hey, I want to come in. I said, sorry, you know, you got to be 19 to come in. Um, that was just the rules we had. And he said, look at this old loser. Why don't you go get a real job? You know, because in the military, you know, I don't need to know who you are. I can look at you. I see your combat patch, your service stripes, you know, your combat stripes. I see your awards. I, I see everything. I know pretty much what you've done without even opening your mouth. And suddenly you get out. Uh, and you're wearing you're wearing a jacket and some jeans and no one knows anything about you and so they just assume because you're a doorman that you're a loser and man that hit hard because you know being in the military was my life it was it was everything and so when I got out I had that big hole matter of fact I had two years of you know I had PTSD from the Gulf Gulf War and um, I had a heck of a time I was in fights every single day and I'm, I mean I, I'm literally to this day famous for my fights because I would make a spectacle out of anyone who fought me and um, you know almost like it was on- did it just to make sure no one would mess with me, but it ended up backfiring because everybody wanted to mess with me. Cause they said, Oh, look at this tough guy, you know? And, uh, you know, back in those days there, no one really knew anybody who was in combat. So it was like a challenge for any of the tough guys to come up and challenge me, which they did constantly. And, uh, yeah, it just, it all, you know, I broke down and, uh, like I had an out of body experience for two weeks. I was completely outside of myself. I couldn't had no feeling and no thoughts and no loves and no hates and no, no nothing. And uh, I thought was, I was—I thought I was losing my mind. And then I snapped back and decided that something's got to change. So I started changing my ways.
0: And we're, didn't at one point you were—you got successful, and then you've kind of, like you said, were were almost homeless at one point. Well, I was so homeless, homeless,
1: but it, for the first time, I crashed was in two thousand one December, and uh, I was in Chicago. You know, I had gotten—I had cocktail bars I opened up in a club. And I had a lot of guests in there that really liked me. And one of the guests was from South Africa and said, Hey, you want to help us bring your, our, 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 our um, business to Germany. And I was like, Bob, sure. I'm not qualified, but I know I can do it. So they brought me on and I crushed it. And within two years, no a year and a half, another. A listed company on the London stock exchange recruited me to do the same thing for them, bring their, bring their um, business to actually to Europe. And, um, I, uh, ended up working for them going really high. You know, I was, by the time I was 32, I was running all of Europe operations and development, um, had 3,500 employees. Uh, at the time, I think we had, I don't know, 40 locations later we had 87. And, um, one, I I was in Chicago on a joint venture with an American company listed on the NASDAQ and it was the largest health club chain in Germany or in, in, America and it had 1.5 million members or I think it was 5 million members actually. And I was doing a joint venture, opening up our clubs over there and their clubs in Europe. And there was a hostile takeover of both companies. So they fired all the directors. And so I went home from Chicago um, and my wife had been in an accident and broke her, broke her back. It uh, turns out that she was with somebody and they were doing something uh, and they fell through, I don't know, a ceiling or something. And while they were in the middle of it and that sort of, Ruined everything there, and then I went uh, to cancel the apartment that I had put a down payment on, and the guy was gone, and so was my money. So within a week, (laughs) I lost my job, my wife, and my money, and um, that was a total crash. I still had my apartment, um, and I had um, a little bit of money, very little bit of money saved, and I said, "Oh, I can figure this out," but I didn't know what to do. So I ended up just sitting down and taking all my notes that I had written about the Gulf War and turned it into a book. Um, and I sent 10 pages of my thoughts to some publishers. One of them picked it up. They wrote an article in a newspaper on the third page. It's called the Berliner Newspaper. It was on the third, pa- third side, which means when you open the front page, that's the first thing you see. It was a full page. It said, Sergeant Kuhn's Private War. And that came out the day the war started in 2003. So that set my book off into a bestseller. And I, I ended up doing a book tour for a year. And I was on TV every day. And, uh, you know, doing readings at different places all over the German-speaking, you know, they call it DACH, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And, uh, yeah, I got back on my feet again that way, but I didn't have a career still. So I went back to that company that I worked before because they had just restructured. They brought me on as a, I don't know what, what I was, general manager or director, I don't remember. And uh, started doing that again. And I was doing that for, for a few years. And then uh, 2008 came, seven actually, and it all, it all happened again. Uh, but this time it was worse um you know i wasn't married anymore obviously uh, but you know due to the crash and the downsizing of the, the whole planet basically i lost everything again and um i ended up homeless this time and i got into a you know a really bad situation tried to commit suicide um called a friend and said look if you don't come get me i'm not going to be here tomorrow and uh he sent me plane tickets and i landed in austria where he lived lives. And uh, he dropped me off at a Benedictine monastery in the mountains of Austria, where I spent a long time just trying to figure out who I was. And that that was sort of my reawakening, if you will.
0: And didn't you spend a long time in silence? Yes, I did. I did.
1: First, I don't know if it was a month or two or a week or two, I don't remember, but it was a long time. And what it, what it taught me was um, fluff doesn't matter. Nice words don't matter. Obviously, bad words and negative words do. But in order to communicate directly, whatever it is that you want to say should have impact, everything that you say. So any fluff you use, any negativity you use, any of those things, those filler words you use mean nothing, and it just, it, it just makes you seem disingenuous and not um, not rooted in integrity. So you know what I mean. Like, hey, honey, how you doing? Great to see you. I'm so I'm all honored to be here. This is amazing. And people think that's nice, and maybe it is, um, but it's fluff. And it's not genuine and it's not, it's not, maybe it's coming from a genuine place, but those words are used and known as fillers and as sort of, okay, I, I need to edify the, the host because the host has me on. So I need to do this and you do that. You don't need to do anything. You need to be honest and you need to base your, your whole life on a set of moral principles, which I call hit honesty, integrity, transparency. They're my own personal ones that Lane and I live by. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, uh, what I learned in there is that when you say something. It should have impact. Otherwise, don't say it.
0: Yeah, because you actually did a post yeah. about that uh, the other day. And, uh, and it's so true, especially on oh, Clubhouse. Yeah. You, hear, you hear a lot of talking and a lot of fluff, but not a substance. whole lot of meat. Yeah, you know, substance, meat. Substance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want wanted potatoes. Give me the meat. Well, I mean, know, that's, I mean,
1: I would say every time I speak on Clubhouse, you know, I'm on every day and uh, in, in Breakfast with Champions with Glenn Lundy you know, Grand Cardone stops by all these people stop by all the time. And there, there's a lot of talk in there, you know, that, that room is one of the very rare rooms where um, there's a lot of substance. And, and so today we were talking about, you know, how you look at your kids and how they interpret that. And it was really touching. I mean, it really moved me today um, because there was so much levity in those words, but typically, you know, you go into a lot of these rooms, it's just a lot of people trying to present themselves and, know, presenting a question, which is really a statement and, you know, just trying, and it just, that doesn't mean anything to me. I hate small talk. I like, that's why I don't have many friends uh, that I hang out with because I can absolutely not stand small talk. It's, it's a waste of time. It's a way people say, well, you're not personable then. Well, anyone who knows me knows that I'm very personable, uh, but it's gotta be a substance. Otherwise, what's the point? It's just a waste of energy and a waste of time for me. I know it sounds a little bit harsh, but uh, that keeps me online. It keeps me on target. That keeps me in, in the up and up. And it keeps my, my uh, business and my life rolling in a positive manner.
0: So what happened when the day when you decided, all right, I'm out of here in the monastery? What was that moment like? What was that mindset Well, Well,
1: um, I I was very uh, aligned with the universe, if you will. And so I wasn't ready to go back to the world yet. Um, so I went up in the mountains and lived by myself in a little hut in Austria and just meditated every day. I would literally meditate 8 or 12 hours just in one go without even waking up. It was just like it was like I was just gone from the planet and nothing surprised me, nothing was amazing. It was all as it should be. And uh you know, people started coming up there to visit me because they heard about this crazy American living up in the mountains. And uh more and more people would come up until, you know, after a while there was like 20 people a day up there just sitting around in a semicircle around me and I'm just talking and I'm sort of I guess you could say channeling information because You know, I consider humans are a conduit and the knowledge doesn't come from us. The true knowledge doesn't come from us. It comes from elsewhere, a larger force, God, universe, angels, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I just let, I just, I just surrendered to that higher power. And I turned into this, like, I don't know, advice giving guru or whatever you want to call it. And it it turned me off because people started to cling to me and thought that I, you know, I was like some kind of savior or something. So I left And I went back to Berlin where I continued to do that, um, sort of help people and even in deeper ways. And then that got to be out of hand as well, because I had a download from, you know, the universe or whatever, where it said, you know, you can only help somebody three times. And after that, they're on their own. They have everything they need. And I would have an agreement with people before we spoke, before we talked or worked with each other, that that was the case. And they agreed. And most people would be fine with that. But there's always a few that you know, wanted more and would demand it and ring my bell at my my doorbell at four o'clock in the morning or threaten to kill themselves if I don't help them. So at that time I was like, okay, I gotta get out of here. This can't work anymore. Because everyone knew me as that guy, that sort of helper, healer, whatever you want to call it. And uh at that very moment I got a call from my old corporation and said, Hey, we got a we got a contract for you. And I was like, I'm not going, I'm not working for you guys again. You guys killed me twice. And they said no, it's in Budapest and something in my And my solar plexus said, man, you got to go. So I said, well, how long is it? And he said, it's three months. I'm like, well, I can do that. That three months will be a great break. And he said, but you can fly back on weekends. We'll pay for everything. So it's only an hour and 10 minute flight. And uh, so I took the the position, tripled my money. um, And I walked into first day in Budapest, the first day in the business that I was, what I would do is I would turn around businesses. So I, I would take a three to six month period and turn a turn business around for being not profitable, just being profitable, putting in pro, you know procedures and structures in place so that they could carry on. So the first day in Budapest, first day in the business, first person I see is this amazing, beautiful woman. I mean, she was like, wow. And I said to myself, that was my wife. It wasn't surprised. It wasn't like, oh my God. It was like, yeah, of course, there she is. And, uh, that that was 12 years ago and we're married. We have two kids amazingly in love. She's a powerful, powerful woman that I just completely adore and worship almost. (laughs) And she does the same to me. So, you know, that
0: you guys are definitely awesome couple with children. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, I see some people, you know, they're so rich, but the only thing they have is money and they don't have that life, you know, that they don't have that happiness. All they have is a business or their money, but they don't have a quality of life yeah, as you talk exactly. about.
1: Very, very. Uh,
0: now, eventually you got into the health and No, that was, that was the whole time I was in the
1: health and fitness industry.
0: And then you decided, all right, I'm getting yeah. out of that yeah, yeah,
1: I was in and out of that for, for years. Um, you know, like I, that was basically my major industry. Uh, but on the side, you got to realize that I, I lived in one city and worked in another, always, or sorry, one country and lived in another. And so I was always traveling in and out. And sometimes I would take contracts there and I would, um, you know, con- continue to work for that company while I was working with other companies. So I worked with hotels, uh, franchises, uh, pharmacies, um, uh, consulting gigs, uh, manufacturers, and I just would turn these companies around. And, uh, yeah, it just kept it kept leading me back to the fitness industry. And I finally got out of it And because there's a big thing that people don't realize. Is that they think everyone in the fitness industry is a trainer. <laughs> and I was an executive. So um, I was the only executive that was in shape, by the way. Um, and that was always something that kept me on the up and up. Um, and I transformed that company and made it into an amazing company. Um, and I, I take full credit for that because that's what they tell me to this day. So I'm not bragging about it. It's just what it is. Uh, but I had to get out of there because it just, there was no growth. You know, I had, I had maxed out and topped out. There's not many in the fitness industry that's done what I've done. And I've worked for almost every single major chain. Um, you know, I've worked for manufacturing as well. we we manufactured, you know, fitness equipment in California and in China. It was called Star Trek. Um, and I know just about everybody who's involved. Um, and it just got to be old. I was just like this, you know, you get stuck in an industry and I just, I just knew I was so much more. And that's when I decided to get out. Get out of it and just start doing other things. So I went to Poland and I opened a um, lending company, and it's now the largest lending company in Poland, private lending company in Poland. That was in two thousand fifteen or sixteen, I think. I worked for Andrea Bocelli as one of his managers uh, for his business. He's the um, Italian tenor, uh, the singer, famous singer. Uh, You know, I worked for Olivia Newton John uh, and took her company from America to six European countries. You know, and I did all these, all these crazy things. I worked with the royals. I worked in politics. I still do in Germany. Uh, co-founder of a political pressure group uh, that turned into a party, which is now the third largest party in Germany. It was just it was just um, featured on uh, Breitbart and some podcasts in America as well. The the, the head of the party, which is my partner. Um, so these are all things that I learned to do um, through my relationships. And by adding value, by elevating others, being the problem solver in every situation that I'm in, and filling the space that I was given. And that was the most important thing that I learned in the monastery was like, when you're given a space, when someone sees something in you, guess what? It's there. As soon as you doubt it, it disappears. So if someone sees in me, like the guy at the bar, right? He said, can you help me bring my company from South Africa? He, he knew I had no experience, but he saw it in me. So I accepted it and said, okay, if, it's, if he sees it, then it's obviously there. So I embraced it and I crushed it. And that's sort of how I live my life. That even in politics, where I get asked questions that I have no business knowing the answer to, the reason they're asking me is because they see that I have it in me. So I just answer the question, and it, it more than not, it's it, it's accurate. So I've I've gained quite a, um, a reputation for being the problem solver, not just in business, but in you know in personal circles and some politics in Germany. And I mean, even you know, a billionaire called me the other day and said, "Hey, I got this issue. Can you help me out?" And I'm thinking, like, why is this guy calling me? And then I thought, Stephen, it, he sees it in you, so deal with it. And so that's what I'm doing. You know, it's just, it's just, it's incredible once you open up to that. It's, it's like a fish, a goldfish, right? You put a goldfish in a fish bowl, it's going to stay an inch long. If you take that goldfish, that same goldfish, and put it in a pond, it'll get about a foot long. So we adapt to our surroundings. We fill that space. And anyone who's ever gone into a job where they felt like they weren't qualified or they felt like an imposter, and then later they crushed it, knows exactly what I'm talking about.
0: You know, and I love that. One thing I love about you is, you know, you always talk about relationship capital. You know, everything is about, you know, even in my life now, everything is about relationships. You know, it could be good, and and you've been one of the guys. You know, and I talked when I talked to Lane the other day. I said, you know, you were the one that set me straight at Mick, and you're the one that actually helped me get over into what I'm doing now, because um, at one point, as you know. I was just praying and praying and not niching down at all and talking to everybody, but not talking to anybody. And, but if it wasn't for you, um, I wouldn't be the guy that I am now. So I just want to
1: publicly thank Thank you. you. That's amazing. So
0: now, now, you know, I've been part of the tribe, I think almost from the beginning. So how did you get into Um... the tribe?
1: Albert Perlenko, I think, invited me in. Um, you know, it was, I think it was like two or 3,000 people in the tribe then. And this is a funny story yeah. because I had just stopped my career. And I said to myself, actually, I was still finishing up because I remember I did my first live in the tribe from Berlin where I was working. I had already lived in Hungary. And um, um, I went into the tribe and I asked Andrew, I said, look, man, um, I'm a business consultant, turnaround business consultant, been doing it for 20 years. I'd love to give free advice. So I started giving free advice every day, every single day. I was doing um, a video, a live video, like how to do this and how to do that. Yep. And KPIs and sales and, you know, manufacturing and, you know, big box retail, whatever. And uh, it, what happened was, is because I was adding value with no expectation, wasn't asking for anything, wasn't selling anything, was just going in there and adding value. People would write me a mail and say, hey, can you help me out? And then I would charge them for it. So after three months, I had 100K in revenue. And uh, I was like, damn, this is a business, (laughs) you know, because when I left my consulting business, I asked all my clients, Hey, I'm, I'm going to stay home and we'll do it virtual. And they said, the hell we will. So I lost every single client. And and so when I went into the tribe, not only did I make money, but I grew the tribe and I grew the tribe pretty big too with Andrew. Uh, And then at a certain point he said, look, man, uh, everyone thinks this is your tribe because you're in there all the time. Why don't you just take it over? So I said okay, and then I asked Lane, "Hey man, you want to be a partner and take it over?" <laughs> that's basically I that was our first partnership, and then you know Lane and I we started a company, a few companies where owner we have an owner ownership in another company together. We have um, the book together. We do the journeys together. Actually, the Peru journey commences for me tomorrow. I'm flying to Dallas for four days, and then I go to Peru after that. Um,
0: yep, yeah, that's one of the things he talked about. He was talked about the first yeah, time you yeah. guys went to Peru, yeah. and hung out together, and that's when you guys actually really bonded and decided all right this is going this is how we're going to become yep, the exactly. humble alpha team
1: exactly what happened exactly
0: so now talk to us about you know cuz i think personally if somebody just bought the book and only read the first 3 pages it was totally worth <laughs> it just for the first couple. because once a person like you said you know once a person finds out who yeah. they really are that's The life just opens up, so and one of the stories that really touched me was about you and the little girl, and that really touched my heart. So, like I said, if somebody buys your book, even if it's to get the first five pages,
1: it's totally worth every single
0: penny. (laughs) So, talk to us about why you guys
1: that's a good question because you know, some people say, Oh, we wrote a book because we wanted this, we wanted that, we wanted this, we wanted that, and and really, um. Uh, there was questions coming all the time. Like, Hey man, how did you end up working for Mick Jagger or, you, or Olivia? Or how did you work in politics? Or how did you do this? Or how did you do that? How do you close this deal? How do you make that money? And I could never really explain it because, you know, Lane was asking these questions and it was like, I, 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 just do it, you know, and I couldn't really explain it. I had hit already cause I was training hit for a couple years and I just, we never, never could work it out. So we ended up, um, dissecting our lives. So we, we did an interview process where we talked about everything and they asked us questions. And then while we were talking, we were looking at repetition. So what happened between or every, every time we lost or crashed? What happened every time we won or achieved? And what, what's the repeating, the repetition in there? What was the one thing that always kept happening? And so we would go through the book and, or through the manuscript and we'd pick things out and be like, okay, this, this happened like six times. And then we'd discuss it, Lane and I. We'd discuss hours and hours and hours. And we would come to the conclusion like, okay, this is the first time that I ever created space was then and then at this time with this person, or this is the first time that this is where HIT was born. Like I can tell you where HIT was born, creating space, relational capital, life, enterprise, quality of life. I can tell you down to the T exactly what day, who it was with and when. And that only came through the process of the interview and keep going over what, 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 what we said in written word. And then what that allowed us to do was now have a foundation of articulation of exactly how we got to where we got. And now because of that, we can teach much more accurately. We know exactly how to say it, how to, how to bring it across. So we're not wasting words, like I said before. And um, on top of that, it gives us a foundation of which we can build much more. And we are building much more. There's so much more happening.
0: And now, you know, now once we're going to talk about business a little bit because a lot of people are going to listen to this are either veterans or entrepreneurs or right. entrepreneurs as we call them. Now, um, now, a lot of people I hear, you know, especially in the tribe, when they get out of the military, they want to start a T-shirt company, yeah. a hat company, or a coffee company. Months later, they're $10,000 in debt yeah. and don't know what the hell just happened. And a lot of it is like something that you told me at Mick. If you do not have a business plan, yeah. you do not have a business. Yeah. So what what can some people do before they even think about starting a business? Sure. What well, you know, a business plan,
1: do? I don't mean, you know, a 300 page, you know, you know, academic business plan. I'm talking about a plan for your business, right? So what I always say is if you're not, if you're not clear on what problem you're solving and for who you don't have a business, Like if you open a t-shirt company, who are you doing that for? Other veterans, probably enough t-shirt companies I'd venture to say, So why is yours different? What specific problem are you solving? People are like, well, t-shirts don't solve problems. Well, they must, or why would you do it, right? So whatever problem, whatever, um, you know, like for instance, a roofing company, they open up, um, what's the problem they solve? Well, maybe the problem they solve is there's no roofing company within hundred miles uh, of these people and they want real reliable service and we're different because we offer a warranty and the other people don't or extended warranty and other people don't and it's free of charge or whatever. You gotta find a way to be that person or that company that's gonna solve the problem that no one else is solving. And the biggest mistake that people make is they think they know the problem. So they don't do interviews. They don't do, they don't do focus groups. They don't, they don't, don't ask people. They just assume that they know, well, everybody has this problem. maybe they don't, maybe only you do, or maybe not enough to. So, you know, I always say, what problem are you solving? Who's it for? And where do they hang out? So you could talk to them. That's the basis of every business. If you don't have that, then you literally don't have a business and you're just potlucking it. You're poking and hoping, as they say in pool. Okay. So now, you know,
0: what are You know, there are certain things you should do on social media, and obviously there are certain things you should not do on social media. And I'm sure owning a group with over 15,000 members, what are some of the things that you see that people should not be doing or they should be doing more of? Well, you know, I'm not a pro at this stuff,
1: but, you know, there's things that I know that worked and didn't work. And, uh, you know, just don't troll. Don't talk trash. Don't swear. Don't, you know, none of that stuff. It's just ridiculous. Um, and, um, I think things that work is giving true value without selling, adding videos have much more traction than, than, uh, posts do. And those videos, they should be engaging, entertaining, shorter than not shorter than long, put it that way. Um, and you should always be adding value without any expectations of gaining anything and stop selling. You know, if people want to buy from you, they're going to see it through the value that you offer and not, not through the offer that you make. So like when I went in the tribe, I would just, people would be on the live and they'd be asking questions. I'd solve the problem right there. They didn't need me anymore, but they wanted me because I said, okay, if you can solve that problem, you can solve other problems. So I, I never had to sell anything. Um, you know, um, I remember one time I made an offer just to see what, I, what happened. I said, hey, as you know, I'm a consultant. Anybody who books me today gets two for one. And I had like 12 people like instantly book me. I was like, oh shit, what did I just do? <laughs> you know, so it's like 24 hours of, of consulting. Like, oh man. So the only reason that worked is because I had been adding value for a year before I even asked for anything. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, in social media, it's, you know, there's engagement rules, you know, the algorithm and all that stuff, it changes all the time. But basically you want to, you want to, there's like a code, like one personal, one professional uh, post a day, like one post a day for professional, one post a day for um, personal, one post a day with a question, one post a day with a motivational, motivational statement, something like that. That's, that's what they do. I don't, really pay attention to that stuff. I sort of use my intuition. Um, our, you know, the Vetpreneur tribe is not as active as it used to be. What is active is the warrior council. The warrior council is crushing it. Um, everyone in the warrior council pays $49 a month and they get consulting with myself and Lane, but more importantly, um, they have that, that cohesion and that, that group think, um, in, in the warrior council with the other vets, there's 85 or 89 vets in there right now. And, uh, every week we crush it with each other. We really, Take it to heart. How can I help my fellow veterans? You know, strive. How can I help them strive to be better? How can I help them to to thrive? How can I help them to be successful, make more money, more revenue, and drive it, drive it on? And you know, I, it's just surprising me. We've we've helped people buy their company. We've, we're helping somebody sell their company. Uh, you know, I'm in MA as well, mergers and acquisitions. I'm pretty big in that space. I'm in investments as well. Just started an investment fund. Um, Lane's part of that. And it's, it's a massive nine-figure investment fund. It's not some, you know, couple million. And that's all come through the relationships that I've had. And the reason that they wanted me specifically is because I have the tribe with Lane. And because we have that, let's say, exposure into the veteran space. Because that's part of, you know, what a, what a lot of people don't realize is in the corporate world, veterans are becoming more and more part of the social responsibility um, aspect of businesses. You know, social responsibility has to do with... You know, are you doing good for the planet? Are you doing good for people? Do you have, you know, all of these different boxes checked? And now one of those boxes is turning out to be veterans. So a lot of companies even hire a CVO, Chief Veteran Officer. Um, and so, yeah, I just got in the right place at the right time, as I always do, because of my relationships. And uh, it's thriving now. So, you know, there's, that all came from me getting doing a live in the Vetpreneur Tribe. I mean, honestly, within three months of doing a live on the Vetpreneur Tribe, I was invited to six stages in America. I was a judge at, the, at the, the Veterans Beverage Competition. I worked, I spoke at Clever Talks. I spoke, I uh, was booked for Bunker Labs. A hurricane came. I was there, so I couldn't speak, but I was there. Uh, I was at Military Influencers Conference. And we did a live event. That, that all came. I was like the number two military veteran, veteran in, entrepreneur influencer in America after three months. It was crazy. And, and that was only because I did something different than everybody else. I just gave my shit away. Just gave it away. Because I know this. You know, they say the eighty twenty rule, 20% do the work of the 80, right? And uh, they just sort of skate by the 80%. Well, in reality, it's more like 6% actually take notice and, and start working and only 1% or 2% will actually carry through. So I know even if I give my stuff away, there's going to be, you know, the difference between uh, that 6 and 1% or 2%, they'll be the people calling me to say, hey, um, I need some help. Yeah.
0: And now, you know, talk to us about, you know, we talked about business now talk to us about having what having a quality of life yeah. actually means because you hear a lot of, you hear but well, nobody actually it, ever it's, broke it's, it down. You know, so quality life down. is
1: is what you make it what what you want it to be, right? So quality of life for me is being where I want when I want with who I want. You know, and and quality of life is having my children around me all the time, which is why I work from home. You know, there's so many different things quality of life. I mean, I and it also has to do with the expectations that I don't have. You know, it also has to do with, with uh, ensuring that my thoughts about my thoughts are not what's guiding me, but actually my thoughts about what's actually happening. You know, because most, most people, we have thoughts about thoughts and not thoughts about things. And we get lost in this world that we create that isn't even happening, but we're all depressed because, oh my God, this is going to happen. And that's like, you have a car accident. First thing you say is I'm going to be late for work. I have to pay for this. My wife's going to kill me. Jesus said, this is always happens to me. That's a whole world you're creating that didn't even happen. And so when you realize that, that your thoughts, your first The impact is what you need to worry about and not not the thoughts about the first impact. Uh, Everything changes. So that all has to do with quality of life. Basically, you follow the book, you're going to reach that that space of quality of life. It's about having people coming to you in a positive manner. That only works because you're going to them in a positive manner. That law of reciprocity, you're always elevating those around you in your life enterprise. You're, You're leaving them in a better place than when you met them, no matter where you meet them and how long it is. It could be a year, it could be a minute, it could be a second. But you're always giving that out. And then the the real part of it is that you really care. You truly care not only for yourself and your family, uh, but for everyone around you. And you don't put profit or money or revenue first ever. It's always the person in front of you solving the problem uh, and creating value for them. That's what really, really counts. And that's what leads to a massive quality of life.
0: Now, what, you know, I've really taken away from our relationship, something I've really learned from you, and I've actually um, put it deep into my life, is trying to live without expectations. You know, I I don't remember, you did a video, I think, it was about talking about, you know, you'll be so, you're going to treat your wife great, you're going to buy her flowers, and then that night she has a headache, and you guys are not going to fool around. But you thought, but now you're all put down and dejected because you thought you were doing it for one reason, doing it with expectation. And, you know, now I try to live my life doing things without expectation. And when things do happen, it's a blessing, but you try to, you know, so talk to us about, you know, doing things. Well, you know, that's the whole
1: point is that, you know, either you have an expectation um, and you verbalize it or you don't have an expectation. And that's because you'll always be disappointed. Like you just said, um, (laughs) You know, you come home with flowers and your wife's thinking like, oh man, what's this guy want? But she's not asking you what you want. And you, in your mind, you're like, oh, tonight's the night, but you're not telling her that. So you both have expectations, even though hers is negative, yours is positive, And you're going to miss each other because you're not, you're not verbalizing it. So either you, you give flowers because you love her and that's it. Or you give flowers because you want something and you tell her you want something. And then it's up to her to decide. Right? So th- you live your life with no expectations unless they're verbalized. Like in business, you have to verbalize them. Um, You know, in your relationship with your kids and everything else, if you don't verbalize your expectations, you're going to be let down. You're going to be mad at them. You're going to be arguing, why didn't you pick that up or why didn't you do this and didn't you think to do that? You know, things like that just don't happen because um, you you don't have the expectations of it. That doesn't mean you don't set rules and guidelines and set goals and things. What that means is unless it's verbalized, you just don't take it as an expectation. Simple as that. And that, that, that creates an amazing life, an amazing life
0: i love that all right last two questions i ask everybody because and i love all the answers that i get um how do we find you how, how can we you know where can we get the book and i love the audio book uh whoever did he, yeah he was great did an amazing job but how do yeah so how do we find the book how do we find your swag yes indeed we um well i'm
1: on you? you know facebook instagram Stephen eugene coon you can find me anywhere just google me you'll find me everywhere um, as far as the book goes, it's on Kindle, it's an Amazon as a paperback and it's on audible, or you can go to book.com and get a free excerpt to see if you like it. Um, yeah, and it, you can pretty much find me anywhere. Pretty, I'm pretty present, if you will.
0: And, and I love your clubhouse meeting. Can you yeah, say what breakfast of champions uh, every morning
1: is? Um, and, uh, that's with Glenn Lundy and a bunch of other moderators where they I'm in there right now, actually, I'm not listening, but I'm in there right now. Um, and it's just value, value add is called Rise and Grind. Um, it's the show that's, that starts at 5 a.m., sorry, 5.30 a.m. Eastern uh, until 6 a.m. Eastern. And then it goes for another four hours, maybe five or four and a half hours, I think. And uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. There's a lot of a lot of value in there. So if you're in Clubhouse, go go check out Breakfast with Champions.
0: Okay, definitely. Um, now, last question I ask everybody, um, because I ask 100 yeah. different people. I'll get a hundred different answers. You know, we're in such a crazy world. Now, you know, we're in a COVID world where now we have teachers being parents, grandparents, you know, being teachers. Um, if I ask so- an average person to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if you know somebody that is struggling with either something personal or even business wise, what can they do in the next twenty four hours um, to start uh, to write this?
1: Uh, what you mean in, in general?
0: In general, yeah, you know, if somebody's struggling in business, what can they do to step back and, and try uh, to? Well, you know, I business? would say
1: pan out, like in the movies, right? You pan out, you pan out from your from your keyboard. To you know your office, and then from your office to your house, from your house to your your county, and from your county to the state, and just keep going up until you feel a little bit of. Do it visually, and you do until you do a little bit of. You feel a little bit of release, and then look at what really matters. And what I say is, what what am I doing that's directly contributing to revenue to the bottom line, right? And what if I am doing something that's not contributing to the bottom line? And I mean, you got to be you got to be harsh on yourself, hard on yourself too, because people like, well, I am writing twenty emails a day. That's not guaranteeing revenue. A call to a client making an appointment, that's contributing to revenue, right? A, a communication, a contact, a contact is only a contact when there's a two, two-way conversation. I can write 500 mails and no one answers them. They're not contacts, right? So you want to actually look at the things that are going to contribute to the bottom line as fast as possible. They're the things you do first. And typically, the things you hate are those things. So do them first. They call it eat eat the rat on Mondays. Eat the rat. Do the, get, the, get the most horrible tasting thing out of the way first so you can sail for the rest of the week.
0: I love that, guys. So, if you listen to this, um, we just got approved to be on Apple right before I got on. Congratulations! So, grateful for that. Uh, Yeah, so, guys, definitely check out Unleash the Humble Alpha what an amazing book! Um, get the audio, get the hard copy, check out Stephen Kuhn everywhere, including Clubhouse. Guys, also check out uh, Disgruntled Veterans, they got Disgruntled Vet coming up, Uh, check them out. So, so Stephen, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. I'm so grateful. Okay. And I'm going to release this as a two-part series. So we're going to have you and Lane go back-to-back, you know, day-to-day. And I'll awesome. be supporting you everywhere, brother. including Appreciate on LinkedIn. It. All right, my brother. Oh, have yeah. an amazing day. Yeah. and You kiss too, brother. The baby.
1: Quality of life.
0: <laughs> Quality of life. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, brother. Bye.